this is the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a Citizen of Heaven. And I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number three, dated April 23rd in the year of our Lord 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here on this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, energized in spirit. I am pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here is a synopsis. I've been preaching about the natural man, and I can tell you, because the Bible says so, that if you're just doing what comes naturally, you are not doing what God wants you to do. I've been reading The Corporate Coach by James B. Miller, and I'm reminded of the importance of service, both in the corporate world and the kingdom of Jesus Christ, although the one does not always resemble the other. I've been hearing about Sri Lanka. My enemies want me to feel fear, my brethren want me to feel outrage, but I'm actually feeling something quite different. I've been playing King of Tokyo, a game that reminds me that the best way to compete is not always the most enjoyable way to compete. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. When my alarm goes off at 6 o'clock in the morning, the natural thing for me to do is hit the snooze button. Or if I'm feeling particularly unmotivated on that morning, just to reset the alarm entirely and stay in bed. That's natural for me. And sometimes I give in to that, depending on the circumstances, depending on my motivation, depending on how busy the night before was or how busy the day before me is. But just because it feels natural to give myself a break, just because it feels natural to wait before engaging in the world and my duties in the world, doesn't mean that that is what I need to be doing. And this battle with the natural man is a predominant theme in the New Testament, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul. The natural man is the problem. It is not the status quo. It is not certainly what needs to be the case, what must be the case. And this is a vital point in the modern day because more and more we're seeing people, including Christians, claiming that their service to God is governed in large measure, not just in little bits and pieces, but in large measure, if not entirely, by what they feel, by what comes naturally to them. And the Apostle Paul is quite clear about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is the, the go-to passage with regard to that. Verse number 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of man that he will instruct him? But we have the mind, the mind of the Lord, rather, that he will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. What he's doing is setting up a contrast between the natural man and the spiritual man. And the spiritual man is the one who is given over to the things of God. The one who has accepted God's ways instead of his own ways. The natural man is not ideal. The natural man is just natural. And from a Christian perspective, the natural man is not something to be accepted. It's not something to be embraced. The natural man is the one that we overcome 
so that we can become the kind of person that God wants us to be. It is part of the problem. It is not the de facto reality. It is not the ideal. It is what we have to overcome. We have to do better than natural. We have to do what Jesus has asked us to do. Accepting direction from God, accepting guidance from God, accepting wisdom from God is not natural. And it's certainly not natural when it goes against what we want to do, what we are inclined to believe, our preconceived notions, our tendencies, our habits. But under normal circumstances, we accept that natural is unacceptable, that natural needs to be overcome. No athlete pursues excellence by doing what comes naturally to him. No scholar pursues excellence by, coming, by doing what is natural to him. No professional pursues excellence by doing what is natural to him. There may be some people who are inclined more than others toward certain activities, especially with regard to physical things. Usain Bolt is more naturally inclined to sprinting than I am. Michael Phelps is more naturally inclined to swimming than I am. Things of that nature. Yes, uh, there is a sense in which our nature may encourage certain behavior or discourage certain other behavior. But even these people at the very top end of the blessed spectrum have to pursue excellence. They do not accept what is natural and leave it at that. They work hard to get to where they want to be because they know they will not get there unless they work hard. Now, we can say it's easier for them, and maybe it is easier for them, but who cares? What difference does that make? What we need to do is overcome our nature and become a different sort of nature, accepting the nature of Jesus Christ. Now, you may feel like you have certain obstacles in front of you that other people do not have. And, and I'll almost guarantee that if you think that's the case, it probably is the case. You may have certain obstacles thrown in front of you. You may have more challenges in certain areas than certain other areas. Behavioral problems, moral problems, whatever it happens to be. Maybe your upbringing was bad. Maybe you don't have the breadth of, of spiritual experience that somebody else might have. It's not natural for you to read your Bible and do what it says. But I guarantee you, there is not a person on the planet for which this comes naturally. God is no respecter of persons. Every single one of us is compelled to overcome our nature. And every single one of us is going to have to do exactly that. Your nature will not lead you to heaven. Jesus Christ will lead you to heaven. That's it. You cannot get there by following your gut, by letting your uneducated, unspiritual conscience be your guide. The only way you can get there is by accepting God's rules for your life. Galatians 5 verse 24 tells us that we have, as Christians, crucified the flesh with its passions. That's what we need to do. We need to kill the natural man so that we can embrace Jesus Christ. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Many years ago, I spent some time in sales and in sales management. 
And one of my supervisors at one point put me in touch with The Corporate Coach by James Miller, who was at the time, and this was, he wrote the book in 1993. It was sometime after 1993, obviously. But he was the president of a company in Dallas, Miller Business Systems. And he wrote this book to explain his philosophy on business and particularly the emphasis that his company was placing on service. And I'd never throw away books. And so I kept you know, hold of it and put it in my in my library and forgot about it. And this year I'm trying to do more reading and diversify my reading subjects. And I dug out the corporate coach and, and looked at it again from a fresh perspective, not as someone who is trying to train a, a business team in a corporate world, but rather as someone who's trying to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I noticed that as much as I've been emphasizing the concept of service in my preaching and in my life as a as a Christian in general, that the same principle also applies, or at least Mr. Miller applied it in the corporate world. And he was convinced, and, and I like to think that he's right, that emphasizing service, emphasizing prioritizing other people instead of just your own self or your own bottom line and your own short-term interests, that this would enhance the experience for everybody, that it's, it's better for you in the short-term and in the long-term to emphasize service. And, and I think that's a great lesson. I think that's a, an important point. It's worth mentioning here, and I hasten to mention, that the concept of service in the corporate world is very different in some aspects to the concept of, cor- of service in the, in the body of Jesus Christ. In corporate world, when you talk about service, you're generally talking about the customer's always right and, and go the extra mile and have it your way and, and logos like that, and sim- symbology like that, that, that tries to emphasize the importance the primary focus on the happiness of the of the customer. Well, in the gospel, I, we don't have customers. In, and it really kind of bothers me when preachers use that kind of terminology. I'm, I'm a salesman. I'm selling Jesus Christ. I'm just a it's a it's a numbers game. And another kind of terminology that are used in the in the corporate world. I, I refuse to look at the gospel that way. I'm not a salesperson. I'm a I'm a preacher, and. It shows up in no way more greatly than in this concept here, because the customer is not always right. The the listener is not always right. The prospective member is not always right. Jesus is always right. And we prioritize his will always, and sometimes at the expense of the will of the member, sometimes at the expense of the will of the preacher or the elder or any other individual human being or group of human beings. It's all about serving Jesus, and hopefully we learn how to serve Jesus, and in so doing, we serve our fellow man. Those two concepts are not incompatible. And certainly the idea in a general sense of serving, of prioritizing other people, of doing a a Philippians chapter 2 kind of approach toward life in general and life in the body of Christ in particular, this is absolutely central to our existence as Christians. Uh, Philippians 2 and verse number 3 tells us, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus was willing to condescend to humanity, to, to life on earth, and to live his life, and to die his death, and ultimately be elevated to the throne of heaven. And this willingness, this eagerness 
to embrace the welfare of others absolutely characterized Jesus, the one who was gentle and lowly in heart. That's who he was. He was ultimately the servant, the one who did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20 verse 25 tells us that. It's a, it's a tremendous blessing for us to be able to learn at his feet, to learn how to serve other people, and to emphasize how uncomfortable that makes us sometimes. Uh, the idea of, of thinking about other people before ourselves, that's not our instinct. That's not our, our nature. It's not our automatic inclination. We want to prioritize our own will, and Jesus teaches us not to do that. He teaches us to be uncomfortable. He teaches us to get outside of our comfort zone, to not simply go the way that we were inclined to go already, but rather to think about other people, thinking big picture, thinking about the, the grand scheme of things, not our agenda or even this group's agenda, but rather Jesus' agenda, the overall agenda that's laid out for us as the body of Christ. And when we talk about being the body of Christ, that's an important image. We stand in his place. We stand for him. We represent him to the world. And it's only reasonable and inevitable, in fact, that we have to prioritize his will and his agenda for ourselves. That means that, yes, we have different roles in the kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 and following talks about that. Uh, different people are given different roles, but we all have the same role. The role of the equipping of the saints for the body, uh, equipping the body of the saints for the work of service. That's what we do. That's who we are. Our interaction with one another is to emphasize not only our service to others, but also equipping them to learn how to serve others as well. It is a long-term plan. It is uh, an objective for us that we learn how to do. It's central to our core. If we never learn how to serve, if we never learn how to serve Jesus, we never learn how to serve our brethren, we'll never understand what it was to be Jesus. We show a lack of appreciation for who Jesus was and what he was all about. We owe it to him, we owe it to one another, we owe it to the body, and we owe it to the gospel to do better than that. Service. It's a calling. It's a way of life. It is a blessing to us, to others, to the body. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. There is a statue in Sri Lanka today. A statue that claims to be of Jesus Christ. I find that ironic. He, the statue is more Caucasian than I am. And the idea of a statue like that at all, and certainly a statue like that in a place like Sri Lanka, seems inappropriate, to put it mildly. But nevertheless, there is a statue. And it is in one of the church buildings that was bombed on Easter Sunday by terrorist groups. Many of the churches were. A great deal of carnage, a great deal of, of loss of life. The statue is peppered with scars, dents, chips from shrapnel. It's splattered with human blood. It is an offensive sight. It is ugliness in every sense of the word. And I'm sure that as we view this image, and maybe you've seen it too, online, as we look at it, our enemies, those who would try to bring such destruction, such ugliness into our world. 
I, I'm sure that they see this as a tremendous victory. I, I'm see that they, I'm sure that they see this as evidence that they can, in fact, bring down the cause of Jesus Christ. That they can win this tremendous victory and and inflict this horrible, ugly defeat on the people of God. And I have absolutely no doubt that many of my brethren, many Christians today, look at this image and they are outraged. And they are calling one another to arms, literally or figuratively, saying that we are to rise up against the, the evils of the world, that we are to recognize the enemy and recognize his tactics and oppose him in every aspect that we possibly can. And there's certainly truth to both of those points. I, I'm sure that the terrorists are claiming victory, and I'm sure that our brethren are vindicated and, and just in looking for some kind of, of retribution, looking for some kind of justice in the world. But I have to tell you, when I look at, at this image, when I look at terrorism at large, and particularly terrorism that is pointed toward the people of God, those who name the name of Jesus Christ, I, I don't feel fear. And I don't feel outrage. I feel hope. I feel pride. I feel peace, as odd as that may seen because I remember that there was a day almost 2,000 years ago when Jesus was standing before his people before his disciples and he was scarred and he was battered by the forces of evil and he was standing before them alive and well and every bit the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that he claimed to be before. A few hours before that, he had been on a cross. He had died. He had experienced physical death in every sense of the word. He had been placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and left there and abandoned there. His followers thought that was the end of the world. They thought that that was the end of the story, that there was the end of the movement, that was the end of Jesus. He had warned them that this would happen. He had told them what he would do in response to it, and I suppose they didn't listen or didn't believe. And then after it happened, they still didn't believe. Thomas particularly is mentioned in John chapter 20 as having disbelieved, and I think he gets a, a bad rap the rest of the apostles try to explain to him about the risen Lord. He doesn't believe. Well, when the ladies of the cross, the ladies of the tomb, explained to the other disciples what had happened, they didn't believe them either. So seeing is very much believing, I suppose, in this case. And when Jesus offered his hands and his side to Thomas and said, do not be unbelieving, but believe, Thomas believed. And he called him my Lord and my God. And John records in John 20, verse 29, that Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's you and me. That is Christians of the 21st century, as well as our brethren from times past and time, brethren who will come after we're long gone. Those who never had opportunity to see the risen Lord, 
and yet have been moved to believe, as John goes on to say in the next couple of verses here, by reading these words that John wrote, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. By reading the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can come to a knowledge, we can come to a faith, we can come to a confidence that the difficulties, the hardships, the terror that is wrought upon us and upon our Savior will eventually be for nothing, just as the work of Pilate and Caiaphas and the rest of his enemies in the first century wound up not just going for nothing, but going to accomplish God's ultimate purposes. We don't always see that in the short term. In fact, oftentimes we don't see it. But we believe. We have confidence. And that means that we can have peace in times of difficulty. We can have joy in times of sorrow. Because we know it's not about what happened on one particular day in one particular country. Or even what happened in one particular lifetime. Unless we're talking about Jesus' lifetime. Because that's what really matters. Our Lord lives. And because of that, we have hope, we have peace, we have joy. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. When I play games, I play to win. I don't apologize for that. In my mind, the joy of playing a game is derived almost directly from the effort to try to win. That's that's why I play a game. If I didn't care about winning, I wouldn't play games. I would engage in pastimes, and I have a lot of pastimes. Uh, there are a lot of things that I do to, to pass the time that are not competitive, that do not pit me against somebody else. That's perfectly fine. If you don't like playing games, if you don't like trying to win, that's that's okay. No moral judgments here. That's, that's perfectly okay. But to my mind, it defeats the purpose of playing when you're not trying to win. You try to be a, a good sport about it, of course. You try to be a good loser. I certainly have enough practice losing playing with my family. I, I ought to be a good loser by now. I've got my, my lumps in over the years. But the idea of, of simply participating without trying to win confuses me. I, I don't I don't get that. Even if I see it in other people, if I'm playing with somebody who is not trying to win, it annoys me. It genuinely annoys me. I would I would rather be beaten than play with somebody who doesn't care one way or the other. Uh, playing the game is all about trying to win, it strikes me. And, and that brings me to a discussion about King of Tokyo, which is uh, one of the modern classics. If I, I'm asked to recommend a game for a family, oftentimes t King of Tokyo is right up at the top, especially if the family has has children, you know, 8, 10, 12 years old, maybe a little bit older. Not that grown-ups don't like it too. It's, it's a, a great game. It's a lot of fun. But uh, young people, especially young boys, like the idea of pretending like they are a giant gorilla who's not allowed because of copyright laws to call himself King Kong, or a giant lizard monster who's not allowed by copyright laws to call himself Godzilla, or one of uh, no, there are half a dozen or so monsters that are available in this game now, with all the expansions and such. Uh, being a monster and, and beating on other monsters is cool, and that's the way the game works. 
you have a, a hand of dice and you roll them kind of like Yahtzee. You roll the dice and you keep some of them and you roll the dice again and you keep some more and then you roll the dice and then you have what you have. And you use the dice that you have to either uh, attack the other monster or the other monsters or to heal yourself from the attack that they've been inflicting upon you. And then the dice pass around you go around the table like that. And the last monster standing wins. It's, uh, it's very simple, ba- very basic, and, and a lot of fun, really. But King of Tokyo is unusual in that there are a couple of different winning conditions. It's not just a matter of being the last monster standing. You can also win by accumulating points. While the others are beating up on each other, you can, instead of taking hits at the monster or healing from your hits, you can just mind your own business. You can just play your own game and just pile up points instead. And if you get 20 points while you are still alive, you win the game. And it doesn't matter how strong or how weak you are or how strong or weak anybody else is. You get to 20 points, you're alive, you win the game. That's all there is to it. And I've found uh, an interesting consensus in my limited experience uh, listening to people who play this game a lot, especially at at higher player counts, like four or more. And it strikes me that everybody pretty much agrees that the fun way to play King of Tokyo is with the monster strike. Uh, strike strategy, beating up on people, king of the hill. That, that's, that's the way to do it. And the smart way is to play for points. And quite frankly, that annoys me a little bit because it pits my joy of playing the game against my joy of winning the game. Those two things are not usually in conflict with one another. And uh, they are oftentimes in King of Tokyo. Your, your loyalties are divided, as it were. It reminds me a little bit of the the competition that we have as Christians. And the Apostle Paul especially is fond of sports metaphors. He loves uh, running. He loves boxing. We see these images given to us a lot. First uh, Corinthians chapter 9 uses both of these things to describe what our competition is like in the Lord. He says, Do you not know, verse 24, that all those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What Paul is saying here is that it's not enough just to compete. You have to compete properly. You have to compete with a vision toward victory, toward the finish line, toward the objective in mind. It's not just a matter of throwing your hat in the ring and having a good time about it. The image of shadow boxing that he uses here may be a little bit confusing to uh, my generation and su- subsequent generations who, who have never put on boxing gloves. But the idea is very similar, actually, to the, the boxing games that they're playing on the Playstations or Xboxes or whatever other gaming system they have these days, where... You, you pretend like you're boxing. There's no actual opponent. There's no actual fisticuffs. You're just kind of putting up a fight, as it were. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets injured. And nobody becomes a good boxer in this way. That's just the way that it is. If you are going to excel, if you are going to succeed in these sporting events, you have to get bloody. You have to get dirty. You have to work hard. You have to, to exert yourself. The course that he charts out for you is not going to be the chores, the course necessarily that you would chart for yourself. What he asks us to do is to s- sublimate 
our desire to do what we want to do, to serve him in our way, which may be fine in and of itself. It may not be a bad thing. But to emphasize not just participating or even just participating well, to emphasize instead running to win the race, giving yourself an opportunity to succeed, to excel, putting away the things that are going to hinder you, emphasizing the things that are going to build you up, to lift you up. That is the way that we excel. And when we do that, the Apostle Paul promises us, if we do, in fact, run the good uh, run the good race, finish the course. If we fight the good fight, finish the course, keep the faith. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 tells us that there is this crown of righteousness, this grand trophy, this grand success waiting for us after this life is over, but only if we will finish, only if we will push ahead and actually accomplish the things in our life that he has charted out for us. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be effortless by any means, but it is dual. And especially since Jesus is there helping us, guiding us along the way, giving us the support, giving us the encouragement, giving us the correction, in fact, the training, the coaching that we need to get to where we need to be as children of God. We can and we must win this race. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you have profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven. And our prayer is that we be part of achieving that objective. Please subscribe to this podcast and give us a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things. And spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammonds.com. There you'll find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 pages a week, and Citizen of Heaven podcast. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.